Several years ago, Gatorade came out with this commercial that I absolutely loved. Imagine it with me. It's black and white. In the background, the song is O Fortuna. You know this one? O Fortuna. It's that epic da 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 da. You know that one, right? Da 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 da. Da da da. Anyway. You, the song is in the background, the commercial's in black and white, and it's featuring a slow-motion montage of some of the best athletes at the time. They feature people like Derek Jeter and Peyton Manning, guys like that. And so you would see them, uh, the camera's panning around them as they're exercising and working out and throwing touchdown passes and hitting home runs. And as the camera pans closer to their face, you begin to notice that they're exerting themselves mightily. They're sweating. They're sweating. And then the camera finally reveals the glistening sweat as bright orange, bright yellow, bright red, and suddenly the point is pretty clear. The Gatorade they drank off the field supplied the energy they needed on the field. And of course, the, uh, the tagline at the end of the commercial in big, bold letters is, is it in you? Is it in you? And I thought, that's kind of like the Christian life, isn't it? What happens in our life is that something off the field provides the energy and the stamina that we need for everything on the field, everything on the field of the Christian life. In fact, our lives are designed by God to be empowered by him so that we have everything we need, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, for life and for godliness. This morning, I want to take you on a short journey through the book of Titus, well, specifically verses 11 through 14 of chapter 2. Because here's what's happening. As Christians, you are called upon by God to exert yourself, not, not unlike those athletes, to give your best, to produce the very best effort, the very best Christian life that you're capable of giving. Of course, to do that requires an enormous amount of spiritual energy, spiritual power. How do we engage with those things? How do we draw on those resources that God has? This really is the biggest question you need to answer. Whether you're a dad who's working 60, 70, 80 hours a week, or a mom who's got several kids running around, or whether you're an employer who's trying to find the best employees and to lead them well, or whether you're doing anything else in between, this really is the crux of the Christian life. How do we live in such a way so that we can make progress in our faith, grow in our faith, grow in godliness and in good works, and not grow weary, not get tired, not want to throw in the flag? I guess if Gatorade were to make a different commercial, they might show people exerting themselves and falling to the ground because they weren't drinking Gatorade. <laughs> they, they would show them struggling to pass the finish line because they weren't drinking up and fueling with Gatorade. Well, what is the Gatorade of the Christian's life? Well, Gatorade is God's grace. The Gatorade of the Christian life, God's Gatorade, is the grace that empowers us not only to become Christians, but to stay Christians and to finish as Christians. And let me tell you, Christian, that grace is powerful enough to sustain every aspect, every atom and molecule of your entire Christian existence. And it's not stingy. It's not as if God is kind of meagerly dispensing power from his throne to give you just enough to get by. No, his grace is boundless. It is abundant. It is generous. The question for us then is how do we draw upon this? What do we do as Christians to take part in this power that God has delivered to us? You see, because I see a, a very big chasm between two types of Christians. Two of them, they look the, they look the same. Well, let, me, let me illustrate this for you. One Christian gets up in the, the early hours of the morning, reads his Bible, prays, and goes about his day. The other Christian does the same exact thing. But what's happening in the heart of each of them is radically different. 
In the first case, you have this man who is obeying the commands of God and saying, I gotta do this, I'm gonna buckle down, and by self-determination and self-will, I am going to execute the commands of God. And he does it valiantly, he does it. He takes care of business. But this other man, this other Christian, does those same works. He, he fulfills those same obligations, but his mentality is drastically different in that he approaches God's word and God's throne as a beggar needing bread, as a thirsty man needing drink, as a weak man needing strength. He comes to God's word saying, Lord, you are my savior. You are my sustainer. You are my supplier. Please fill me. Help me. One is self-sufficient. One is God-sufficient. One draws upon his own resources. The other draws upon God's resources. The difference is a matter of spiritual life and spiritual death. Surviving the Christian faith versus thriving as a child of God. This morning, we're going to draw upon God's empowering grace. We're going to learn that that grace is not only sufficient to save us, that grace is also sufficient to train us to live godly lives here and now. And it also points us to a coming glorious future where that same grace that God supplies will also lead us all the way home. And it'll finish the work that he began. Turn to Titus chapter 2. We're going to look at just four small verses, but I tell you, brothers and sisters, these verses have the power to radically change your life. This morning I've been praying so much for you, and I am trusting that God is going to use this to shake you up, stir you around, and leave you energized with a newfound energy to love God and do His will by His grace. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Let me just quickly orient you to this book. Paul writes his book to Pastor Titus. Titus is on the island of Crete in the, in the Mediterranean Sea. And his purpose in writing Titus is, look, I left you behind on this island, young brother, young protege, in order to establish these churches, to appoint pastors and elders. Because there's a lot of people right there around that, that congregation who are teaching false things. And Paul says, look, I, I want you, Titus, to uh, to present the true gospel with faithfulness and, and accuracy. And then I want you to help the congregations that are there to grow in maturity. In fact, he says, look, the congregations in Crete are lazy and, and, and basically worthless. He quotes one of their prophets. And he says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then Paul says, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. And so Paul has strong words for the Cretan church. And he says, Pastor Titus, make sure that this church and these group of churches are living in a way that pleases God, living in a way that shows where their hope and their faith is. And so in chapter 2, he then lays out the various uh, the various roles that are played within the church. He talks to older men. He said, older men, be self-controlled, sober-minded. Older women, don't be slaves to much wine. Uh, younger women, uh, learn to love your husbands and families. Young men, be self-controlled. And then he talks to the bond servants, and he says, bond servants, I want you to do your job without stealing. Don't do anything that would displease God. And ultimately, he, he ends that whole section by saying, look, we do this so that we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. To adore, that's a beautiful word. That's exactly what it means, to beautify. You were to live this Christian life up, uh, upstanding and, and, and holy so that we can beautify the gospel. And then Paul provides the foundation for all of his exhortations to this point, and that's where we get into verse 11. He says, verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Everyone I just mentioned, the male, female, Jew, Greek, slave-free, the grace of God has appeared for everybody. And that grace, verse 12, is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions 
and to positively, to, to the negative, renounce, positive, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, here and now. Verse 13, future focus, he says, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are, look at this right here, zealous for good works. Oh, brothers and sisters, I love this passage. Let me focus your attention on verse 11. This is where we're going to begin, and I want to point out to you just one quick thing here. Again, verse 11 showcases the foundation by which he establishes all the other commandments he just gave. For the reason why I can say these things authoritatively, the grace of God has appeared. There is a past tenseness to this, this word here. The grace of God has shown up. And it's not just a, 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 a theoretical kind of a, a impractical sense. Here he's, he's saying, look at Jesus Christ. He appeared. His life, death, and resurrection is a historical event that you should take great comfort in. And that historical event is what brought salvation for all people. And again, I think he's referencing the very people that he just listed above. Older women, older men, young men, young women, and bond servants, slave-free, everybody who names the name of Christ can partake of that same grace. And what Paul is doing here is in the middle of this passage, he's going to repeat this in chapter 3. He's going to repeat the same kind of theme in chapter 3, and especially verse 7. But he's saying, look, guys, I need you to know that when I give you commands, when I tell you walk the walk and talk the talk, I'm not saying this as a, something in the middle of the air to just kind of provoke you to do good and crack the whip on you. He says, no, always remember that the, the, the foundation of the commands that you receive are foundations of grace. Christian, remember where you came from. Remember what God has done in you. Remember what God displayed on the cross on your behalf. Paul is trying to stir their remembrance, stir their affection to not only obey because they have to, they're just grinding it out, but obey because they get to. He's trying to capture their affection. He's trying to capture their heart and to help them say, look, remember what God's done for you? Think about that. Let that remind you how good you have it. Point number one, if we're going to draw upon God's grace for, the, for obedience and godliness, we need to rekindle our affections for God's saving grace. Rekindle your affection for God's saving grace. Christians, we have a tendency, and I, know, I think we all know this, we have a tendency to drift. It reminded me of a time when I took a bunch of seniors on a senior retreat, and uh, one of them, who shall remain nameless, started swimming out in the ocean uh, because our house was near the beach, he started swimming, and he got further and further out. And of course, we yelled at him, Joseph Lopez, be careful. <laughs> I got it, Pastor Rod, I got it. So he swam and swam. And then someone came up to me, a concerned high school student, and said, Pastor Rod, I, I think Joseph's in trouble. I said, why do you say that? Well, he's, he's, he's like miles out in the sea now, and he, it seems like he's struggling out there. And so I said, okay, well, let me, let me take a look. And I kind of started looking out to see him. And he was a, li a, lot, a lot smaller than I recall. And he was a lot further out. Like, we are here, and he's way over there. And so we're yelling at him, Joseph, come back. Joseph, come back. His drifting just kept on going. And then suddenly I noticed that he's swimming violently. He's trying hard to get back, and now he's caught in his rip current. And so I, I pray and say, God, please bring him back to the shore. I don't want to have to call a parent and let him know he's not doing well. So he eventually... <laughs> by God's grace, makes his way back to shore. He's out of breath. He's, oh, man, I just, 
man, Pastor Rod almost died. And he, he's, he's, just, he's just exhausted. The reason he was able to float out and, and nearly kill himself accidentally was because he was unmoored. There was nothing tying him down to where we were. And that happens to Christians all the time. Uh, we get unmoored in our Christian faith, and we start drifting, so much so that Hebrews chapter 2, the author of Hebrews says, let us beware of drifting. Let us not drift from the truths that we heard. Uh, let us be careful not to do that. Drifting is a natural, fleshly current that happens to many, if not all of us, Christians. How do we then avoid that drifting? Well, we have to, uh, the affections, as I, as I brought them up in point one, are a part of this, but those affections are moored to propositional truths. They don't hang in the air. The affections are not simply, hey, get happy, start rejoicing, Christian, just because you're supposed to be happy, pl put a plastic smile on. No, 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 this is not that at all. The affection and the joy that a Christian experiences in the Christian life is tied to and grounded upon propositional truths that come from the gospel of God. I put it like this in two different categories. We're going to rekindle our affections for God's saving grace. We need to think about what we deserve and what we receive. Let's talk about what we deserve. Heads up, this won't be fun. Romans 3.23 is probably one of the most famous verses that we, we all know. If we're going to take anyone through the Romans road, we're going to start with Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one's accepted from this. Man, woman, child, slave, free, uh, Jew, Greek, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this is devastating news. This is not a happy verse. It tells us that every single one of us in this room has a, a, a condition that disqualifies us from God's salvation. And that's true for every single one of us. I found out about a, a satellite that has the ability to see inside buildings. It does so by sending radio waves, and it's able to replicate the innards of a building with great accuracy and great crystal clarity. I'm sure they'll never use it for nefarious reasons, right? <laughs> that exists. And if that's what we know of as a public, then certainly there's probably much more technology out there that we don't even know about that does more than what this satellite does. That should make us a little nervous, right? If that makes you nervous, what do you think about God who sees not only the innards of your house, but the innards of your heart? who sees all of your life start to finish, every single thought, word, action, deed, everything in between. He sees it all with crystal clarity, and it offends him. Small sins offend him. Large sins offend him. Everything about who we are is laden with sin and therefore incredibly offensive to our perfectly holy and pure God. Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the standard of God's perfect righteousness and glory. He is so good, so perfect, so incredibly pure that even an ounce, an atom of impurity is detestable to him. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're sinful in more ways than we can probably even imagine. Let's think about our actions. This is probably the one that most of us tend to think about when we think about our sinfulness, our actions, what we have done and failed to do in obedience to Christ. We don't prioritize our wives. If we're husbands, we don't give them the attention that they deserve, according to Ephesians chapter 5. Or maybe we're watching sexually immoral and sensual movies or video games, or we're listening to songs that provoke passions and lusts that, that, that deny our allegiance to Christ, our actions. Or how about our words? Christ also says that every careless word that we utter can be and, and will be used against us in the, in the court of his law, if we are not found with a solution to our sin. The, the words that we have said or fail to say in obedience to Christ make us and reveal us to be guilty before the heavenly throne. 
We might have been given to using our words to say profane things, maybe in about our politicians. And if we're not saying it, maybe we're posting it and we're putting graphic content on our media feeds in order to make a statement to stick it to the man because we don't like what they're doing. Our words are used against us in God's courtroom because they reveal our heart. Let's continue thinking about this here. Speaking of our thinking, let's talk about our thoughts. The thoughts that we have uh, or fail to think in obedience to Christ. Many of us know the experience of justifying our sin by using the very organ to, to, to do that, by the very organ that God gave us to do that. We might say to ourselves, look, I, I can sin in this way because I've had a long day. You know, I worked really hard today. I put in 12 hours, and so when I get home, man, I, you know, I just got to release a little tension, and this is the way I do that. Or maybe, you know, the kids have been so disobedient today. When I explode at them or when I seethe with anger on the inside, you know, so this, I, I deserve this. I need this release valve. I need this pressure to be released. Or my wife has been so this, or my husband has been so that, or the, my politicians have been so this other thing, that I deserve to, to disobey God because surely he understands. Our actions, our words, our thoughts. Let me give you one more. How about our affections? To love anything more than Christ is treason, treasonous. God calls us, uh, Matthew 22, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is our great commandment, he says. And so anytime we love anyone or anything more than Christ, we betray allegiance to God. We show that we think this thing, whatever it happens to be, is more satisfying and more worthy of our devotion than Christ himself. And so our affections betray us. Your affection might also be demonstrated in how you spend your money or your time or what you entertain yourself with. It shows where your affection truly lies. Now, Christian, I need you to understand, I say all these things from a place of love. This is our plight. This is our shared common problem. But like diamonds on a black velvet, the gospel is going to shine more clearly and more beautifully when you see it against the backdrop of your sin and our sin, our shared humanity. Now that we have a greater taste of our plight, let me now turn the corner with you. And let me offer you two words that, even though this is not in our text, it's definitely fitting here, but God. <sighs> Prepare to feel some release. All of us know what it's like to feel, I hope anyway, if you're a visitor, then hopefully this is the first time you might feel your sin against a holy, righteous, and just God. It should quake you to the core of your being. It should cause you to tremble before him because he is a God of absolute moral purity. And yet, but God, he steps in to resolve our primary problem and dilemma. He steps in to take care of us in ways that we could never even fully fathom. But God, but God, what has God done for us? What has God issued in order for our, to be, our, our acceptance before him? Well, he's sent Jesus Christ. We deserve God's righteous wrath, but here's what we receive. We receive his generous, lavish grace in the form of a person, Jesus Christ, who lived and died and was raised for our justification. Jesus steps in and takes what we deserve. And this is why one of my favorite songs, and sometimes my, my conscience tends to yell at me and tell me, look, you're guilty, you need to, you, you, you're, you're a terrible Christian. And, and here's, here's how I respond. One of the ways that I respond is by a song. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God 
the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Praise God for that. That is the grace that we've received. Everything gets placed upon the shoulders of Christ. Everything we just talked about, actions, words, thoughts, affections, everything that I just laid out there and exposed, we can now say if we're in Christ, look, that's all on his shoulders. Jesus paid my sin debt, past, present, and future. I never have to worry about that. Will sin still be a part of my life? Yes, but when I repent of it, I could be confident Jesus has already received the wrath that I deserve. His death on the cross is what makes me righteous, and that's what I celebrate. That's what gives me joy. That's what gives me hope, and that's what gives me assurance. I don't have to doubt because Jesus did it all on, on my behalf. Jesus paid it all, we just sang. He did it, and therefore, my soul is now counted free. I am happy. I am joyful. I am satisfied. Now, again, I'm not trying to simply give you a sappy sentimentality here. I'm trying to paint the picture for you that what we deserve and what we receive are in stark contrast, and this is all of God's grace. This is how God has already demonstrated to you that he has given you everything you need for life and godliness. He has done it for you on the cross. You think about a list of your sins itemized on a piece of paper, or a parchment, perhaps, in black and white, you know, adulterer, murderer, blasphemer. It's almost as if God takes that list and then he just pours the blood of Christ on it. And as the blood of Christ drips down on the itemized list of your sin, the black ink begins to dissipate, begins to smear, and no longer are your sins itemized before you because they've been, they've been purified, washed away by the precious blood of Christ. Praise God for his grace. Praise God for the work of Christ. Praise God that you are here in reverent obedience for what he has done on your behalf. These are the propositional truths we must moor ourselves to. This is part of the Christian's power and strength in this life. We always go back to the propositional reality of what Christ has done for us on the cross. We get grace and mercy instead of condemnation and death. And when we moor ourselves to these truths... Christian, when that happens, when you understand these, when you embrace these, when you ingest this, breathe this, eat this, feel this, believe this, what happens to the person who feels this in the core of their being? Let me tell you, the difference is between two balloons, okay? One balloon, you blow up. You let that balloon, you tie the thing, let the balloon go. What happens to that balloon? Drops. You want to keep that balloon in the air? Smack it a couple times. My kids love doing this, right? They get the balloon to smack it and they keep smacking it. Some of us treat our Christian's life that way. We just smack it around. Like, oh, get back to work, get back to work, get back to work. The other kind of Christian is the one who's been filled with the Holy Spirit. The equivalent might be helium. Filling it with helium, tying it up, and then letting it go, and what happens? It naturally gravitates toward the sky. That is the power of God's grace in the life of the Christian. It gravitates. It motivates and moves us to higher levels of godliness than anything we could do trying to grit it out with our teeth bare and oh, I'm going to kick myself again. No, let God's grace motivate the kind of obedience that he calls us to. Zealous for good works doesn't happen accidentally. It doesn't happen from a place of mere self-will. It is God's power at work within us that elevates us to newer, more profound, and deeper levels of godliness and good works. And this is why Jesus says, look, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, love naturally results in wanting to obey him. We love him when we realize that his grace is what compels us. God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. It is that profound reality 
that spurs and motivates your obedience. So we look back to what Christ has done. That previous act in history has a present tense applicability. Look at verses 11 through 14 with me once more. I want to point out two verses to you this time. We're going to highlight verses 12 and 14, but we're going to read the whole thing just to get some context once more. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, man, woman, child, slave, free. And that grace now, verse 12, is training us, training us, civilizing us, restoring, redeeming us to renounce, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And notice at the beginning of verse 12, it is grace that's training us. Some people think that grace is a license for us to sin and to say, well, hey, God's grace, right? God's grace. I, I can sin. God doesn't, it doesn't matter because my sin has been forgiven. Pastor Rod said everything's on the cross. So as I sin, God forgives it. Praise be to Jesus. That's not how this works. God's grace isn't licensed to sin. God's grace is licensed to live righteously. And in fact, that's the purpose and function of grace. It functions in the Christian life to train, disciple, and change us in such a way that we renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. We repudiate these things, and we, and we do that in order to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Why? Verse 14 is the answer why. Because we do this for, through, and with Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. Jesus gave himself for this to, two things, redeem us from all lawlessness, to save us from the debt of our sin, and the second thing, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, to create a new people, to give us a new identity. And those people are zealous for good works. Grace doesn't only redeem us, doesn't only deal with our past, it has a very real and active present tense applicability. Point number two, we're going to apply God's grace by aggressively applying his empowering grace in our everyday lives. Aggressively apply God's empowering grace. I had this old uh, car, a 1987 Honda Accord. It was kind of a, a light blue, had paint peeling all over, had 260,000 miles on it wasn't the nicest car, but it got me from point A to point B. It was reliable. I, I trusted it. it. It was a great car. It wasn't the most powerful car, as you might imagine. It was a 98 horsepower, and so it would go from zero to 60 in about five minutes or less <laughs> if I was going downhill, and there was a tailwind. <laughs> Lots of things had to work out for me to get up to speed. I felt very bad when I was getting on the freeway because inevitably someone would get behind me and have to slow way down in order for me to catch up. Anyway, one day I had a friend who said, uh, and this is a friend's dad, actually. He said, hey, you want to drive my 1967 Chevy Camaro, my souped-up vehicle? And I said, absolutely, I, I would. <laughs> and so, and, and I've, I've never driven a car like that ever before. I've never had the experience of driving, uh, driving a vehicle that had that many horsepower. And so he says, all right. So he takes me to uh, the stretcher road where there's no one else around. It's pretty, it's pretty desolate. And he says, all right, Rod, I'm going to get out of the passenger seat. I'm going to get out of the driver's seat and let you get in the, in the driver. And then I want you to drive this bad boy. And I said, fantastic. So I get out and I get in the driver's seat. I put my hand behind the wheel and I'm feeling it. I'm, you know, I'm doing that thing that all young men do. You know, one of those things where I'm like, I'm feeling the car. And then he says, all right, let's go. And so then I put it in to drive and I slowly accelerate. <laughs> and he looks at me quizzically. I'm sure he said something to the effect of, Rod, what are you doing? So I'm driving the Chevy Camaro. This is amazing. Thank you. I'm grateful for this. And he says, no, 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 no. He says, stop the car. And I put my feet on the, ga or the brake, and he says, look, you can't drive this like your, your four-cylinder Honda Accord. This is a muscle car. 
You apply this muscle. She said, I want you to unleash it. Okay. I tell you, this moment in my life, I'll never forget because it was one of the most exhilarating, awesome feelings. Pedal to the metal, I hit it. That was the high point of my young adult life. It was, I was fast. I felt like I was one with a car. I was just flying down the road at the speed limit, <laughs> flying down the road, <laughs> plus or minus. But see, that experience, I realized, wow, there's so much more power available. I don't even touch it with my 98-horsepower Honda Accord. But this car reminds me that there's a lot more power available to me if I had the right vehicle. Christian, you've been given a Christian vehicle that is empowered by God's grace. It is a souped-up religious experience that gives you vast amounts of God, unlimited amounts of God's power to execute your Christian life. Some of us drive our Christian experience like we do my Honda Accord, my 98-horsepower Honda Accord. Rather, we need to step on the gas and realize that it's all there for you. The gas of grace is available for you if you would but punch it in your Christian life. This is why I use the word aggressively. We aggressively apply God's empowering grace. It is there. If you are in Christ, you have, again, and I've quoted this race second time. This is my third time. Everything you need for life and godliness. Second, uh, second Peter chapter 1. Everything you need for life and godliness. It's all there. You just need to obediently tap into it. How do we unleash the power of God's grace in our lives? Well, there's three things I want to point out to you from verse 12 and 14. We unleash the power of God's grace in our life by doing these things. First of all, we starve the old man. Starve the old man. When, when Paul says, look, we renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, he's not saying that we kind of uh, you know, uh, mildly and, and just kind of uh, weakly tell our flesh, okay, don't do that anymore. You know, tap on the wrist. Please don't do that any longer. No, we repudiate. This is a strong response. This is an aggressive response. We renounce, say no, deny our sinful inclinations in our flesh, renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions. Paul would say it differently in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. It is a strong, godly response. In fact, it reminds me of a time when I was a young boy. I used to live in this apartment complex, and the, the entire complex was, uh, was infested with cockroaches. Not a pleasant experience. It was the kind of place where uh, when you go into the kitchen, uh, you don't want to turn the light on in the middle of the night because you would see all of these guys scattering about in the room. And so you just keep the light off, and you just crunch your way to the, <laughs> to the sink, get that water. And when you get that, that middle-of-the-night glass of water, you may not want to look in the cup. You want to rinse it first, and then just do it and just go for it. Hopefully nothing jumps in while you're drinking. If your water's a little more chewy than usual, you just kind of take it in stride and just hope that God uses that to grow your body anyway. God protected me. I'm still alive, and that's, that's part of my, my story here. My mom would tell us, look, Rod, you cannot leave any crumbs out ever at all, even a little bit. Everything needed to be cleaned up immaculately because she never wanted to provide even a little opportunity for these little guys to flourish. And flourish they did. They only needed a little bit of help. And sometimes I wonder, they wouldn't even help them. And they still flourish. These guys are all over the place. So she would say, clean up after yourself. Be ruthless in our cleaning activity. Never leave a crumb on the counter. Put all your food away. Anything that they might potentially nibble on, destroy or put in the refrigerator where they can't reach it. Like, we were pretty ruthless with those cockroaches because we needed to be, right? They're disgusting. You don't want them anywhere near you. But for Christians, sometimes we tolerate our cockroaches. 
The sin in our life is a lot like those cockroaches. It multiplies and manifests, and it's far more insidious than a cockroach. The cockroach, you know, they make themselves known all over the place. You can see them. You see their eggs. You see their droppings. You see it all over the house. But for sin, sometimes it's hiding in your life. And sometimes God will give you glimpses of it, and you're like, okay, well, that's a, that's a, shouldn't deal with that. It's a boo-boo, and I don't want to take care of that. But you need to be as ruthless with your sin as we try to be with our cockroaches. The cockroaches of your sin need to be destroyed, stamped out, fumigated, tented, nuked entirely. That's why God says grace does this. It's not because you're trying to earn or curry favor with God. It's a matter of his grace that allows you to do, to do the hard work of sanctification, to starve the cockroaches, because our sin is even more disgusting than those cockroaches. There are two things that Paul identifies, two massive cockroaches, if you will, that he wants us to deal with. The first one is ungodliness. Renounce ungodliness. Ungodliness is, is, a, is a way of living that we all know uh, denies God's authority, power, and purpose in our life. So let me give you a, a couple examples of things that you might be entertaining, cockroaches, that you might allow into your house. Now, the first one is, how about this? You might be entertained by sin. You might be watching on your screens, the small ones and the large ones, things that, uh, that fundamentally uh, are against all that Christ is for you. You know, Disney, the Hulus, the Amazons, the Netflix, they perpetuate sin and they stream it 24-7 in copious amounts for you to take part in. Are you entertained by the things that Christ died for? Do you laugh at the things for which Christ cried for? Do you allow things in your family or in your life that you know if Jesus were sitting next to you, you would not watch that? Do you allow yourself to support the ongoing production of these movies, TV shows, whatever, by your constant attention to them? Or are you willing to renounce certain things for the sake of Christ? Your favorite TV show introduces a new character, and that character is as sinful as sinful can be, and yet they're highlighted as being the hero or the heroine. Are you willing for the sake of Christ to say, no, I will deny ungodliness? I will not celebrate, I will not glorify that which Christ died for. He is worthy of my affection. Kind of like cockroaches, the more you tolerate sin, the less you are to notice it. As a young boy, again, this is my reality, so I really didn't notice we had a cockroach problem until people came over. And they started noticing, whoa, 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 you know, where can I sit? There's cockroaches all over the place. And I was none the wiser. You know, oh, there's a problem in here, let me help you, you know? my bare foot. And they're, you know, appalled. <laughs> okay, all right. I, I didn't notice it was a problem until someone from the outside pointed it out to me because I tolerate it. It's my life. Let us not be so tolerant of sin that we stop noticing it. Worldly passion. Passions aren't a bad thing, but they become a bad thing when they are worldly in nature. Things which the world aspires. You think of 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Um, the world and its desires are passing away, right? The lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and pride and possessions. These are the things that John identifies as worldly passions, things which otherwise are contrary to Christ. Our worldly passions might be as innocent as being passionate, overly passionate about neutral things, but they become bad things because they take up so much of our time, energy, and attention. I think about the dads on the baseball field who are exceedingly passionate about their sons playing the, the game, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that. But they're very passionate about that. But when it comes to spiritual values and training them in the way of the Lord, they're less passionate. It doesn't matter as much. I'll take you to practice. I'll, I'll do, do what I need to do to make sure that you're a star baseball player. But when it comes to raising you in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, I'll let mom handle that. Worldly passions. 
Or maybe materialism is something for us. We might think about going with the next church plant because we really want that bigger house. I have more square footage and I'll have a bigger yard. And sometimes, again, going back to the, the earlier part, the way our sin plays with us here, we might justify that by saying, well, I can, I can host HFGs and I can do bigger and better things with my family. And that might be a genuine thing. That's where you need to search your heart and say, God, expose my sin. I know I'm sinful even in my regenerated state, so please help me avoid ungodliness and worldly passions and to aggressively starve the old man. Starving the old man is the first thing, but strengthening the new man is the next thing. That's why verse 12 ends with, grace trains us to live, this is the positive now, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Grace fills the vacuum left by our sin with righteous behaviors. This is God's work in us. And, and this is where I'm going to say, look, Christian, you need to give your very best to this. You need to aggressively step on the pedal uh, of God's grace in your life to say, look, I want to I abhor, hate, and dissolve worldly passions, and I want to put on righteous behaviors. Well, it sounds like you're saying, Pastor Rod, that I need to do this myself. Absolutely not. Jot down Philippians 2, 12, and 13. I love this, and I go back to this passage all the time with my students because it's so fundamental to the Christian life. Philippians 2, 12, and 13 says, look, Paul says to the, the church in Philippi, work out your own salvation, which sounds blasphemous at first, doesn't it? Like, oh, hold on a second. I can't work out my salvation. Jesus paid it all. We just confessed that in our songs. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for purpose clause. It is God who works in you, both to will, to desire, or to rather to do, to will and to desire for his good pleasure. In other words, when you labor unto godliness, when you give yourself to, to passions uh, that are in line with God's scripture here, it is God's work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. When you desire godly behaviors, that's the Holy Spirit working in you. When you execute godly behaviors by grace through faith, that's God's work in you. When you give yourself over to righteous habits, coming to church and worshiping the Lord and, and submitting to his word, that's God's work in you. If you're doing it by grace through faith. God is responsible for your salvation. God is responsible for your sanctification. And that's why grace and faith are relevant, pertinent to even your sanctification process. As you put off sin and put on righteousness, it is you trusting God to say, Lord, I'm going to give up this thing here in faith. I'm going to put on this thing here, trusting that you're going to use this for your glory and honor. We depend upon him even for our, sanctifying, uh, our, our, our sanctification in total. And, and honestly, guys, there's no life hacks here. I know all of us, are, we like looking for things that are going to help make our, our sanctification quicker, faster, better, you know, life hacks for the Christian faith, and there's people all over the web who are going to give you these tips, tools, and tricks, and, and great, they're, they're useful for as far as they go, but true godliness is birthed by grace through faith through regular acts of obedience. As one, as one theologian put it, a long obedience in the same direction. It is a step-by-step, inch-by-inch progression toward godliness, but here's what I'm saying. That may be true, but let us be aggressive drawing on his grace to get to that point. Worldly passions. We're to get rid of those. We're to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Self-control uh, in a day and age where everything is instant. You can stream anything you want almost any time you want and get anything you want from Amazon within 24 hours. You can, you can have almost anything at your fingertips within a matter of moments. And COVID gave us the ability to get our groceries. You know, it's quicker than ever. It's streamlined process. We, we are so used to getting everything instantaneously that the value, uh, the fruit of the spirit of self-control is sometimes so lacking we're, we're barely cognizant of it. One of the ways that that's revealed is by our social media habits. 
I spend a lot of time on social media. In fact, one of the ways, I saw this in a documentary, um, one of the ways that social media uh, manipulates your attention is by causing you to function like an addict with its platform, where you open it without even thinking. You open your phone, you swipe up, and then, oh, there it is, you click on it. You didn't mean to click on it. You were trying to go to something else, but you opened up your social media because, oh, I was programmed to do that. God calls us to exercise self-control in even the way that we interact with social media. We need to be self-controlled not only in that, but every aspect of our lives. Sometimes we're really good at exercising self-control in one area of our lives, but other areas are lacking. We might be great at our work, but in our home life, we might not be the kind of men we should be. We might not be the kind of women, the mothers that we should be, because we're giving so much attention and deference to this other part of our lives while everything else remains in shambles. Let us exercise self-control in giving our very best to our family, to our church. Paul talks about being upright, and that upright word lends itself to a, an idea of justice. Let me just say one thing about that. Um, justice is a word that's tossed about a lot today, and it's used in ways that I don't think fits what Scripture says about that. So let me just encourage you with one, with one admonition. As we think about concepts of justice in today's especially volatile climate, let me encourage you to define justice biblically. Please go back to Scripture over and over again and ask God to make you clear on what genuine biblical justice is. We define the world around us according to what God says in his word. We don't let the world define it for us. Same thing is true with the word love. So as it comes to our self-control and our upright behavior, let us define those qualities based on what Scripture itself says. Godliness is the last thing that Paul says, that we're strengthening the new man by being godly in the present age. We should not apologize for not doing things that the world says we should do. We should aspire to being the godliest we can possibly be in every way possible. Strengthen the new man. This last one is important, and I'm getting this from verse 14. We starve the old man, we strengthen the new man. Let me come back again to how the gospel and God's grace informs this. We are to identify with the new man. Identify with the new man. Verse 14, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. That's, that's one of Jesus' reasons for coming. He gave himself to cleanse us from our sin, to redeem us from all lawlessness, to steal us away from things that would uh, en enslave our soul. And he does this uh, also to purify for himself, to create for himself a people for his own possession. He is in the business of creating a new identity among us. He's created a new people for us. And those people are zealous for good works. Identifying with the new man is God's grace to say, look, you are on the team. You are part of the family. I saw yesterday, um, I, I saw recently uh, a dad berate his son in front of his baseball team. Dad's on the team, and uh, son comes, and he's like, yeah, you gotta get your act together. You need to do better out there. Perform. Yelling at him. I thought, man, my heart hurts for this kid. Thinking, what message does that send to him? You are acceptable to me if and when you perform to the degree that I command you to. If not, your status as my son and on this team is compromised. God is not like that. Again, I'm not saying license to sin here. What I am saying is, look, you are accepted by God. You are beloved of God. You are full in God. You are perfect in God. You have been righteously atoned for in Christ. Your life now belongs to him. You are a people for his own possession. Peter puts it like this. He says, look, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences 
excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, later on, he'll say, look, now, as a result of who you are in Christ, now abstain from the passions of the flesh. Know who you are in Christ. Look, some of you guys know what it's like to have your, your life kind of fluctuate. I, I feel more Christian when I'm obedient. And there's a, I get that. You know, as we're obedient, we, we experience God's acceptance in greater quantities. And when we're disobedient, when we sin, we kind of go through this whole turmoil of soul, like, I'm, just, I'm not good enough, I haven't been obedient. Amen, you're not good enough. Yet you're never going to be good enough until Jesus comes back. But the answer to that is, well, I'm going to buckle down and I'm going to do better, I'm going to try harder and be more. No, 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 no. Your job is to point back to the, the cross and say, my acceptance is in Christ Jesus alone. When I sin, I look to him and I say, Jesus, forgive me of that sin. Make me acceptable based on the work of Christ, not on the work of my flesh. Receive me, God, as your own because of who he is. I identify with him. It's the, whole, uh, it's the evangelism explosion method. If you were to die today and you were to stand before God, you know, why should he let you into his heaven? The answer isn't, well, I've done all these wonderful things for you. I went to church every Saturday and Sunday. I, I served in Awana. I, you know, I, 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 I told my family to read the Bible. No, we're all going to say Jesus and him alone is the object of my faith. He is my salvation. My works, if they're of any value, have been done in and through him. He is my rock. He's my redeemer. He's the one I hang my faith upon. Your identity, Christian. Your identity in Christ. If you embrace this, if you understand this, if you uh, ingest this into the core of your being, you will have a greater zeal for righteousness. You will have a greater strength for self-control. You will have a greater, uh, a greater strength to pull from to be all that God wants you to be. Grace equips us and fuels godliness. Grace in the past stirs our present response, but it is also future-oriented. It has a future aspect. I love this part of the sermon because this is where Paul points our attention to something that ought to excite us and motivate us to push all the harder. Titus 2, verse 13, after just talking about all that Christ has done, uh, all that Christ has given us through the, through, the, through the grace of the gospel, he says, grace also does this. It, it causes us to be waiting for our blessed hope. Blessed, happy, joyful. Um, it's good. It's a good hope. What is that hope? That hope is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You, you'll notice in verse 11, grace appeared, past tense, something that God did in the past. He's now saying in verse 13, there's a future tense of grace in that it is appearing in the future, and that appearing is the glory of God, our, uh, the glory of of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace trains us now and teaches us to wait then for our future hope. You notice what's happening here? Grace covers your past, your present, and your future. It's kind of like that, that hymn, uh, "'Twas grace that taught me how to fear, and grace will lead me home." It is God's grace that the, the Christian draws from that starts our faith, endures our faith, and finishes our faith. This is what we look forward to. This is what we visualize. This is what we set our affections on. As we run hard the race in this life, we're looking toward the next one. We're envisioning and imagining Christ's glorious return. I put it like this in point three. Visualize Christ's gracious return. It is a grace-giving event. It is an event whereby God delivers certain gifts to us. He's written the promissory notes. He's, he's put certain things on layaway, as it were. 
He's put your full sanctification on layaway. He's made the deposit. You are now sanctified, but you are going to be fully sanctified someday. The deposit has been made. Someday, Christ is going to cash the check. Christ is going to pull you out of layaway, and he's going to finish what he began on the cross. Your salvation was fully affected at the moment Christ died for your sin. But that salvation is not fully realized until Christ comes back to deal with sin fully, finally, and completely. Visualizing Christ's gracious return is kind of like what the athletes do today. The, the Olympians, uh, one of the techniques that they have in executing all their movements is to use the, the practice of visualization, or imagery as they call it. They, they literally go through the movements and the motions in their heads and in their bodies as they're awaiting to go to do the actual thing. And so in their minds, you know, their eyes are closed, they're trying to smell the, the mats, and they're trying to feel, uh, feel the wind on their face, and they're imagining all these things in their head in order to perform better. In fact, one of the uh, Olympians said this. She said, look, people are recognizing that training the mind is just as important, if not more important, than training the body. People are beginning to realize what Scripture has already talked about, that our image, our visualization, our inward imagination is critical to us being able to run the race with endurance, looking to Jesus, right? This is our, in, our inner person looks forward to Jesus. Our inner person is visualizing Christ's gracious return. So let's use our sanctified imagination here as we look at one more passage here. I want you to look at Revelation 21. Revelation 21, we're going to look at just two verses, verses 3 and 4. We're going to use our sanctified imagination to understand what's going to happen when Christ returns, when he comes back and brings grace with him. This is our heavenly heritage. This is our uh, coming future. Look at verse 3. Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. There's that identity again. They'll be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. One of the most remarkable things about being born again and about knowing our heavenly heritage awaits us is that God makes us to be his people with perfect purity. For visualizing Christ's return, we have to know that it will be unencumbered holiness. We will be with God. We will love God perfectly. We will never experience a day when we, want, we get out of bed and we're like, I'm tired, I don't want to read my Bible. No, we will enjoy perfect relationship with God. Your entire being, your entire person will be unencumbered in its holiness. It will be perfectly pure before God. You remember when Jesus said to Peter, look, the spirit is willing, but the what? Flesh is weak. Not in the new heavens, not in the new earth. The spirit is willing and the flesh is strong, Paul would say. 1 Corinthians 15, your new body will be imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual. It'll be everything it was meant to be, and you will have unencumbered holiness to be yours in full measure. And it won't be like, oh, I'm full, I'm complete. No, it'll keep being poured into you, making you newer, better, more and more, enjoying the glory of God for the rest of your eternal existence. This is your heavenly heritage, your future that is to come. But there's more. Look at verse 4. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Okay, pause for a second and feel that. Has anyone ever done that to you? Like put their hand on your face and just wipe away your tears? That is an intimate act, is it not? Like I, don't, I, I could say maybe on, count on one hand if any of us can say anyone's ever done that for us. And for the most part, that's unwelcomed. Like, don't try to wipe away my tears. I don't want that. <laughs> and I won't do it for you. 
But when God does it, it is an intimate and tender act of his gracious fatherly care for us. And I can imagine these tears are not tears of pain. They're tears of joy and gladness. We're so overcome by being in his presence and loving him that there is a, a, a type of overwhelm that results in tears streaming from our face, and he's going to wipe them away with his hand. Intimacy. Get this. Death shall be no more. We're a church, and so we know a little bit about death. We've done memorials. We've seen a lot of people in our lives who we love move on to the next life. In this next life, there's no more death. In fact, John Owen, uh, the Puritan, has a title in one of his books, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. Catch that? Death died when Christ died. And so in heaven, when God comes back for us and receives, him, receives us to himself, there's no more death. Neither shall there be mourning, no more, no, more, no more tears, no more sadness, no more crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. It will not only be un it will not only be unencumbered holiness, it'll be unmitigated happiness. You were designed to be happy in Christ, full in him, complete in him, and this is what he promises will be yours in the future. Visualize what that will be like. Embrace that, taste that, and know that that's what he has for you. This is God's boundless grace, a grace that begins your faith, a grace that sustains your faith, and a grace that will finish your faith. Draw on God's grace, compass, and let this provoke and inspire greater acts of godliness, greater acts of good works, and great renouncing and great denial of sin. Don't do it from a place of having to grit your teeth. Draw on his grace. Be the thirsty, hungry, dependent person who comes to him and says, Lord, feed me. Lord, sustain me. Lord, do in me what the Bible says, what your spirit wants to do. There's small group application questions. I have some broad questions for you. I want you by his spirit, to discern, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do with this sermon? How do I apply righteousness to my life? How do I deny sin? What do you want me to do with this? Let him lead you in this. If you have the spirit of God within you, he's working on you right now, I trust that. And what happens if all of Compass is drawing upon the power of God's grace and charging forward? Here's what happens. We don't do less than what God requires. We will not only meet God's righteous standard because we're doing it as an act of faith, we will exceed that. We will be aggressive. We will be zealous. We will want to charge new territory. We'll want to have more ministries done. We'll want to have more churches planted. We'll want to see more of our neighbors saved. And in fact, we will be part of that story because we will, by acts of obedience through faith, drawing upon his grace, we will speak up when at first we were timid and, and afraid. But because we know that we belong to Christ, and because we know he saved us, not because we loved him first, but because he loved us, because we know these things, we as a church will grow tremendously. I'm not talking about numbers here. That would be great too. I'm talking about us as Christians, as believers. We will grow in greater love and greater godliness and greater good works for his glory and his honor. Let's pray. God, we want to be the kind of church that's on mission every day, every hour. We want to see a church grow. We want to see our church become all that you have designed her to be. And God, we want to have it crystal clear in our minds that this is not our good works uh, being rendered or wrought uh, for the sake of your approval. We have your approval in and through Christ, and we, we praise you for that. We know, and we can confidently express, Jesus paid it all. We believe that. Because we believe that, God, help us to respond to your word by pursuing great acts of godliness, great acts of obedience, by grace, through our faith. 
Let our faith provoke us and propel us as a church, as a body, to be all that you've designed us to be, to be eagerly waiting for Jesus' return, to long for that. And while we're here, to be that salt and light, that preservative and that truth-bringing organization that you would be pleased with because your acts wrought by faith, empowered by your grace. We love you, Lord. Please help us to walk away with a new resolve to love you even better because you first loved us. We ask all this in Jesus' name.